How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. So far, we have heard God's word to the Gentile nations, a word of warning and judgment, which is certainly coming, and if you look at the history, actually did come, but also holding out the hope of consolation through Israel, that is, through God's promise made to Abraham, God would bring all nations to become his people. Greetings and welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's time to conclude our three-part series on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. Dr. Paul Robbie joins us. He's Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Concordia Seminary and author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Dr. Robbie, welcome back. Yeah, hi, Todd. It's good to be back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. What is this second section, major section, Isaiah 24, 27 about? Well, so uh, 24 to 27 is uh, very important material. A lot of uh, big emphases come through. So what we can do, the best way is just kind of talk about it chapter by chapter, but it ties in a lot with the material of uh, 13 to 23 as well. So it, it fits in this part of the book. What does Isaiah predict about the destruction of the earth? So here's the situation. Isaiah is speaking in 701 B.C. when the Assyrians were camped in Judah, and they were uh, threatening Jerusalem. They wanted Jerusalem to surrender and become part of the Assyrian Empire. They had uh, conquered all kinds of city-states and nations in the past, Resistance was futile. Surrender. So what is Jerusalem going to do? Of course, Jerusalem is under King Hezekiah at the time, who's a good king. And he uh, prayed to the Lord to deliver them. And the Lord, in a miraculous way, delivered Jerusalem. The account is given us in Isaiah 36 to 37. And the account tells us that the Lord put to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And then the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had to go back home to Nineveh. And the irony is that 20 years later, Sennacherib got assassinated in his own temple. (laughs) His own God couldn't even protect him in his own temple. So that's the situation. But what Isaiah does is he merges that immediate historical situation with the final judgment day of the whole world. So it's kind of this immediate situation and the final judgment day are kind of collapsed. They're uh, folded into each other. They're projected onto the same screen. And so he's going to, he's, he's, he's going to be talking about this destruction of the Assyrian army, but he's going to be talking about it in terms of this universal judgment day 
that awaits all the wicked. So it's kind of a universal judgment day that he's going to be talking about. And even, you know, the uh, end of the earth, because of its curse, it's being under the curse. So the end of the entire cosmos, that the day of the Lord is coming, and the entire cosmos is going to go nuts, go into convulsions. Isaiah uses a, a lot of interesting language to convey this. Jesus says the current heavens and earth will pass away. Uh, the New Testament talks this way too, Second Peter. But then Isaiah says in chapter 65 and 66 that God will create a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. So it's kind of the old creation is thoroughly corrupted, and it will be uh, destroyed, and God will create a new creation. So in these chapters, he pictures the ultimate end. And he starts off in chapter 24 with this ultimate end. So it's going to affect everybody. God is going to empty the earth, lay it waste. It's going to affect everybody. Why? 24 verse 5, because all the people of the earth have uh, disobeyed God. They've uh, overstepped God's instructions. And then 24 verse 6, therefore, a curse is going to consume the earth all the inhabitants are going to be treated as guilty, and it'll be so devastating, there'll just be a few people left. So here he's picturing all humankind together in one package as uh, all sinners, just like we say every Sunday. We indeed deserve temporal and eternal punishment. That's what he's picturing. Everybody, because they're sinners, deserves temporal and eternal punishment. No exceptions. So that's the picture. Now, he gives us different pictures in these chapters. That's one picture, but then he'll give us other pictures later. So that's the start of chapter 24. The whole world is decimated because they're all guilty sinners. Is this judgment on the earth, the ultimate judgment on the earth, connected to the curse in Genesis 3.17 of the ground on account of Adam's sin? Yeah, that's right. They're related, in others, because all people are sinners and God put the earth itself under this curse, the old creation is uh, thoroughly corrupted, both people and earth. But in the future, God's going to recreate a new people and a new heavens, new earth. The picture initially there is of a desiccated earth, dried out completely. Why is that important? Because it's, it's going to be uninhabited. So 24 verse 3, emptied plundered. Every land is going to be plundered. So again, he's, he's using the Assyrian army as his example, and he's picturing that as plundering country after country. And he's combining that BC picture with the ultimate end time. Then in 24 verses 7 and following, now he backs up. Isaiah likes to start with the end time scenario, the final scenario, and then back up. And in 24, verse 7 and 8 and following, he's talking about one city that's destroyed and uh, desolated with very few survivors. Now, he doesn't mention that the name of that city, so it would be the cities that he's been referring to in chapters 13 to 23. Cities like Babylon, Samaria, the city of Boab, Tyre. So he's just picturing how now he's kind of talking about 
the near future in the present time under the Assyrian Empire. After describing the dried out earth, it says in 24 verse 18 that the floodgates of heaven are opened as judgment against the earth. How is that significant? That's right. So now he's picturing again this final judgment day, and here he's picturing it as another type of flood, that in the first flood, sluices of the sky were open and flooded the earth, and so another type of destruction like that will happen again. That's what he's alluding to, the flood there. And he expands it then to, uh, there's no escape from this final judgment day, 24 verse 17, every inhabitant of the earth is going to be caught. And 24 verse 19 and following, he goes back to this final picture of the whole earth being destroyed. And he does some nice uh, Hebrew word plays. Let me read my translation. Shatter, yes, the earth shattered. Sever, yes, the earth severed. Shiver, yes, the earth shivered. Stagger, yes, the earth will stagger like a drunk and will sway like a shack. And its rebellion will be heavy upon it, and it will fall and never rise again. He likes to use similes and metaphors. Here he's picturing the earth as a a drunk man staggering back and forth. Then he pictures the earth as a shack that's swaying in the wind. So the earth is going to fall, be destroyed, be shattered, severed, and shivered. It's kind of interesting language he uses there. The chapter of judgment ends with the Lord reigning. What does that mean? Yeah, so this is going to be the day of the Lord. Like I say, in uh, the immediate situation, 701 B.C., the Lord exercised his rule by defeating the Assyrian army and saving uh, Jerusalem, Zion. But similar sort of thing will happen on that final day as well. He collapses these two into the same picture. And so the Lord's going to punish the uh, 24 verse 21 is often misunderstood. He's not referring to angels. He's referring to armies that conquer on high elevations and that conquer on the level ground and that conquer on everywhere in between. So he's talking about human armies under human kings that just devastate. And then there's going to be this day of reversal. They are going to be punished. 24 verse 23 and the Lord of hosts himself will exercise his kingly rule in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. So God's own final ultimate kingly rule will display itself. And in Isaiah's day, that, of course, was the destruction of the Assyrian army. But that's only an anticipation of the final day when God displays his kingly rule. God alone is the king, not the kings of the earth. God alone rules, not the nations of the earth. And he'll display it in Zion and Jerusalem. And then 24 verse 23 says, and in front of his elders will be radiant glory. So God will display his glory in front of his chosen people. And he's echoing there Mount Sinai where God did that in front of the elders. So it's the promise of the ultimate kingdom of God, the future ultimate kingdom of God. Of course, we know, you know, that this ultimate kingdom of God broke into a history ahead of time through the ministry of Jesus. So we say it's now and not yet. The kingdom of God already is here now through the gospel, and one day it will be manifested in this visible, glorious way. So it's the promise of the kingdom of God. God alone is the king, 
not the kings and nations of the earth. Chapter 25 is a song of praise to God. How did that fit with the previous chapter on judgment? Yeah, very good question. So Isaiah is talking about, he's, he's reacting to what was previously announced in the previous verse. God will display his kingly rule in Zion. And then Isaiah speaks to God. So in these chapters, Isaiah oscillates between speaking to the people and speaking to God himself. The prophets all did this. They were intercessors for the people. This goes back to Moses. So here Isaiah uh, speaks to God with faith and praise and confession as well. So we have to think of Isaiah speaking both to the people and to God back and forth. So here, yeah, he praises God. He gives God thanks for all of the wonders that God has done in the past. And in 25 verse 2, for how God himself was behind Assyria destroying these cities, these uh, mighty cities that were so fortified, God brought them down. The reason, 25 verse 3, was that other peoples would glorify the God of Israel. And 25 verse 4, and you, God, have been a strong refuge for the poor and the needy, uh, like a shelter from the storm, when the terrifying nations storm against us. So God has protected his people in the past. And then in 25 verse 5, he will protect his people once again. So he's talking about his people gathered there in Jerusalem, in Zion, around God's presence at the temple. And in Zion, there is refuge. This is one of the great emphases of Isaiah. In Zion, there is refuge. So God will protect his Zion. So Isaiah is praying and praising God in response to this uh, promise of the coming kingdom of God. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking with Dr. Paul Robbie, author of The Issues, Etc., Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. Enrollment is now open for the 2024-25 school year at Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas. Faith Lutheran provides a classical Lutheran education for pre-K through 12th grade. They also offer online classes with student and teacher interaction for high school students worldwide. Learn more at flsplano.org, Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas, flsplano.org. On the other side, we will talk about two, actually three, very important verses in chapter 25. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually in the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Simonex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to eighth grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road, 
call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. Greetings in Christ. I'm Dr. Reed Lessing, Director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. The Center offers annual preaching workshops for Advent and Lent, seminars on a book of the Bible, and studies focused on biblical stewardship. We also showcase the best biblical scholarship in the LCMS by hosting three-day seminars each summer, featuring a guest scholar. Learn more at csp.edu slash Center for Biblical Studies. The Substitute Organist Service has been a great blessing for our worship life here at Christ the King Lutheran in Riverview, Florida. Pastor Kevin Yoakum on the Substitute Organist Service. Now our organ plays rich liturgical music every single Sunday, and it's very affordable. You pick the hymns, you pick the liturgies. It's very simple. Just know when to push play. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com, churchmusicsolutions.com. We are concluding our three-part series on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. Dr. Paul Robbie, Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Concordia Seminary. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues, etc. Dr. Robbie, talk about there in chapter 25 the significance of the verses 6 and following. Oh, so these are terrific verses. What a wonderful promise these verses are. So Isaiah is giving the people warnings about coming destruction, but also promises. So Isaiah is a preacher of the law in all of its severity and the preacher of the gospel in all of its sweetness. And that's what you have here in these verses is preaching the gospel in all of its sweetness. Here in Zion, God will make a feast. And notice 25 verse 6. It's for all peoples, including Gentiles. Wonderful promise that God promises to incorporate, bring into his people Gentiles from the ends of the earth. And he will prepare for them this wonderful feast. Literally, the words say, a feast of fat things, a feast of matured wines, fat things full of marrow, matured wines well refined. But my students in my Isaiah class at the seminary gave a great translation because the Hebrew has all these word plays and sound plays. And their translation does a nice job of, of conveying it in English. So they translate it, will prepare a feast of fine dine, a feast of fine wine. Fine dine only prime, fine wine well refined. I love that translation. It captures the Hebrew. I call this Isaiah the rap artist. He's doing all these sound plays in Hebrew. So this end time feast that's going to be for all peoples, including Gentiles located in Mount Zion. The New Testament picks up on that, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we can say that we already anticipate this ahead of time now with the Lord's Supper, that the Lord is already giving us a feast. And a lot of us in the Lord's Supper are Gentiles. God is giving a feast and we're Gentiles. Then in verse 7 and 8, this is a wonderful promise. In the Old Testament, and actually in ancient Near Eastern literature, death is often spoken of as a swallower. The grave just swallows up the living. 
with an insatiable appetite. But Isaiah reverses it. On this day, on the day to come, the Lord will swallow up death itself. The swallower will get swallowed. The Lord is going to swallow up physical death in perpetuity. So physical death will one day disappear. The God of Israel will one day swallow it up. The Apostle Paul picks up on that in 1 Corinthians 15. Then on that last day, death will be swallowed up in victory. He's getting that language from Isaiah 25. This was a unique uh, hope of ancient Israel, the resurrection of the body. And here's a good example, Isaiah 25. Death, and he's talking about physical death. Physical death will be swallowed up and 25 verse 8, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, tears over the death of of people, and the reproach of his people Israel he will remove as well. So it's this wonderful promise, and then how are the people going to respond? 25 verse 9, they're going to respond with this short little hymn. Isaiah liked to kind of compose the eschatological hymns ahead of time. They'll sing, look here, this one is our God. We waited for him that he would save us. This one is Yahweh. We waited for him. Let us exult and rejoice in his salvation. And, of course, we remember that the name Jesus does mean, in Hebrew, Yahweh is salvation. That's what his name means. He's our Savior. And this is ultimately how he saves us. Saves us from sin, death, and from the devil, and even from death itself. So on that day, we will exult and rejoice in his salvation. Now, we're doing that already now. This salvation has already been won for us. We already sing now in advance in church these uh, hymns of salvation. Call it a uh, rehearsal of the ultimate songs we'll ultimately sing. Why is Moab mentioned for judgment in the last part of chapter 25? So that's interesting how all of a sudden in 25, verse 10 and following, he has this bit about Moab. And the reason is because he doesn't have any special animosity toward Moab, but he uses them as an example of a Gentile nation that refused to come to Zion, that stays in their place, 25, verse 10. And what happens to those who stay in their place, who do not come to Zion, they just meet humiliation and disgrace, and God brings down, so 25 verse 12, they were confident in the fortifications of their own walls, but God will bring that down. Only in the city of God is their strength and refuge. The cities of man will be brought down, and uh, Moab was just an example of that. So yes, God wants all nations to sing his praise. Uh, but it has to be in his Zion, not outside of Zion. So it's kind of what we would say, in Christ and in the church, not outside of Christ and outside the church. So in Christ and in the church, there's salvation. Outside, there's just the disgrace and humiliation. So it's kind of a contrast. The city of God has this wonderful song, the cities of man are uh, humiliated. 26 verse 1, he reemphasizes the contrast. So the 25 verse 12, the city of Moab, their high stronghold will be brought down. 26 verse 1, but in Judah, 
they'll sing, a city of strength belongs to us, and God has set as its walls and defensive ramparts his salvation. His salvation is the walls. So this would be Zion, the city of God. So it's a contrast between the cities of man, Moab is an example, and the city of God. Tell us about Judah's song in chapter 26. Right, so it's a wonderful little song. This Again, this is going to be this future song. Uh, a city of strength belongs to us, is what they'll sing. Salvation God has set as our walls and defensive rampart. So uh, God will protect his Zion. That happened already in a preliminary way in 701 BC when God protected Jerusalem from the Assyrian threat. And that was just kind of a foretaste of this ultimate salvation in Zion. How is the resurrection described in verse 19 of chapter 25? just want to mention in 26 verse 10, and this sign is going to be a home for Gentiles as well, and it calls for faith. So like 26 verse 4 calls for faith in Yahweh. Isaiah was the great preacher of faith. And then later in 26, so he picks up on this, God is going to swallow up death in chapter 25. And in 26 verse 19, he makes this wonderful promise, your dead, O Lord, so in other words, the dead who belong to the Lord will come to life, they will arise, and then Isaiah even says, including my own corpse, that's what the Hebrew says, including my own corpse, translations often miss this, but Isaiah included his own body as going to participate in this bodily resurrection. Of course, we know from history, Isaiah was sawed in half under King Manasseh. So Isaiah himself had this hope of the bodily resurrection, even of it for himself. Now, he's referring to the resurrection unto eternal life. And so only those who belong to Yahweh enjoy this resurrection unto eternal life. Unbelievers are bodily raised, but it's to judgment and eternal death. So then uh, 26 verse 19, Isaiah speaks kind of rhetorically, the dead, and says, uh, get ready to wake up and shout for joy, for the Lord is going to bring about a dew that's going to awaken you, O you who lie down, dwellers of the dust. So it's this wonderful promise of a bodily resurrection unto eternal life. 26 verse 20 helps us locate these passages in history. 26 verse 20, Isaiah is talking to uh, uh, Jerusalem, and he says, Go, my people, enter into your chambers. Each of you shut your door behind you. Hide, O Jerusalem, for a little moment until the indignation passes on by, for the Lord is about to go forth from this place to visit in punishment the iniquity of the earth's inhabitant against him. Here he's the immediate application is 701 BC, where the Jerusalem might stay in Jerusalem and God wiped out the Assyrian army. So I take it that that helps us locate it in history. But it's also referring to the ultimate day as things really get worse. There's safety in the church, and uh, and one day there'll be judgment day, and God will vindicate his church. His church will become the church triumphant. What should we know about the Song of the Vineyard in chapter 27? 
Oh, yeah. So this is the reverse of chapter 5. In chapter 5, Isaiah talks about the vineyard that has stinking, rotten grapes. And it wasn't the owner's fault. The owner did everything he could to produce a good vineyard. But it produced lousy, rotten, stinking grapes. And now in chapter 27, Isaiah reverses that picture and says, ultimately, the Lord is going to have a fruitful vineyard. The Lord is going to protect his vineyard and is going to bear much fruit. And then 27 verse 5, he encourages the enemies of God's vineyard to instead make peace with God to uh, take refuge in the God of Israel. And then this wonderful promise in 27 verse 6, this future vineyard is going to take roots, send out shoots, and fill the world with fruit. And in fact, that is what has happened. Already in a literal way, from Jerusalem, the gospel went out to the nations, as we read about in the book of Acts. It has borne fruit around the world. Our mother church is the Jewish church in Jerusalem, and it has borne fruit in the whole world. And then we're connected to this vineyard through faith in Jesus, who is the true vine. So it's this promise that we too will bear much fruit. As Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. In me, you bear much fruit. I take it that Jesus was kind of evoking this passage from Isaiah 27 of this fruitful vineyard, just the reverse of the lousy vineyard of chapter 5. How does Jesus use this song of the vineyard in Matthew 21 and Mark 12 in his famous parables? Right. So in those passages, Jesus is, is referring more to the lousy vineyard that bears rotten fruit, and that's going to meet destruction. So there I think Jesus is evoking Isaiah 5, the lousy vineyard. Here in 27, it's the reverse. It's the, it's the new vineyard that is fruitful because God makes it fruitful. This whole section ends with the Gentiles worshiping God on his holy mountain. How does this in its own way summarize God's promise to the Gentile nations? Right, so this is a very good question. Yes, this is exactly one of the big goals of God. It's been called kind of the mission of God and working throughout B.C. history of Israel. Going back to Abraham, in Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Israel was never just an end unto itself. It was always a means to a bigger end. And God's goal, ultimate goal, is to bring Gentiles to himself, the true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel, to bring all Gentiles to himself in his place, in his church. Zion was kind of the B.C. church, the A.D. church is the A.D. Zion. And this was his goal, bring the Gentiles to himself. And he's been fulfilling this promise now for the last 2,000 years. And many of our listeners are a part of the fulfillment. A lot of us are Gentiles. And yet here we, we worship the God of Israel. We're even reading this Israelite prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah would be shocked. Bunch of Gentiles at the end of the earth reading Isaiah. <laughs> he would be shocked. A lot of us even go to the bother of 
learning Hebrew to do it. <laughs> He'd be amazed. So the God of Israel has been fulfilling this promise now for 2,000 years, bringing Gentiles to himself, and we're part of the fulfillment. So just reading Isaiah can help us appreciate, first of all, the person and work of Christ, but also ourselves and the church and also the mission of the church to reach the ends of the earth with the good news. So we're part of the fulfillment of this wonderful uh, vision of Isaiah. Gentiles coming, streaming to Mount Zion to worship the God of Israel. What a wonderful vision. Dr. Paul Robbie is Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Concordia Seminary. He's author of The Issues Etc., Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. This new commentary is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. Or you can browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. Look for the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27 by Dr. Paul Robbie. Dr. Robbie, thank you again. Yeah, thank you very much, Dad. We will be talking natural marriage with Dr. Brad Wilcox, author of the new book, Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. From New York's beautiful Hudson Valley, visit us at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer, Peekskill, New York, a small, confessional, conservative Lutheran church with traditional Lutheran liturgical worship, gospel-rich, shenanigan-free. For more information, visit us at OurRedeemerLCMS.org. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Animal carnivory? 
This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis, Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. All this week, we've seen that creation and evolution don't mix. And here's one final reason. In Genesis, we read that God's creation was very good. There was no death, including death by animals eating one another. You see, originally mankind and the animals were created vegetarian. Genesis says God gave them the green plants for food. And yet we find examples in the fossil record of animals eating each other. If this fossil record is millions of years old, then for millions of years animals were eating each other and yet God said they were vegetarian. It doesn't make sense. No, we can't add evolution to the Bible. Do you have questions about creation, evolution, and the truth of God's Word? Visit our faith-affirming website to find answers. Go to AnswersRadio.com.